a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course, address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits, welcome. Hi and welcome to today's episode on the podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Hannah Short, a GP and accredited specialist in menopause and premenstrual disorders. Hannah is brilliant. She will share with us from her personal experience, from her professional experience. She's just written a book, The Complete Guide to POI and Early Menopause with Mandy Leonhardt. And the reason why I really wanted to talk to Hannah today is in her book, The Complete Guide to Menopause, they want to offer a roadmap to navigating the emotional and hormonal roller coaster. And because Hannah has her own personal story, which she shares with us today, she knows she needs to look at it from all different angles. It's okay to look at our symptoms and what we can do to manage those, but it's also really important to look at everything that's happened to us emotionally. And I can't wait to dive into everything Hannah has to share with us today. We will also talk about food. We will also talk about exercise. And I just, yeah, I'm so inspired by Hannah's story and by all the work she does. And I hope you really find today's episode as helpful as I did. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to today's episode on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you. Oh, hi. Thank you for asking me. We are going to talk about premature ovarian insufficiency, especially for all of our people who are watching or listening. How can we be thrown into this premature ovarian insufficiency after a cancer diagnosis? What can we do about it? I want to hear a little bit about your story because I think there's so much to learn from your own experience. If you don't mind sharing that, I didn't actually ask you. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> um, shall we start with you, actually, Hannah? You're a GP, and I've introduced you um, in the intro before, and your main focus is helping people with premature ovarian in insufficiency. Tell us what you do in a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm a GP, um, but I, most of my day-to-day -day work is really working with, with women and, and people with POI, so yes, premature ovarian insufficiency, and menopause, but also premenstrual disorders. So really the whole spectrum of female hormonal health, but, but they're, the, they're the main focus. And I've got a special interest, I think, in early menopause and POI because of my own experience. And I think it, it really shone a light on... This fact that there's a whole group of women who, you know, their experience is overlooked or they're not receiving the proper treatment and diagnosis. And yeah, I, although it's brilliant that there's greater awareness around menopause, I think there's a whole swathe of people who are just overlooked and, and kind of left out of the conversation. Mm. And so were you a doctor already and then you had problems with your own cycles and then you became more aware of it? Or did your journey start way before that? 
I always had problems with my periods <laughs> um, like ever since I started at age 13 and, and I was diagnosed with endometriosis in my early 20s but I pretty much struggled like, for most of my teenage years with that and severe pain and sickness and missing time of school and university. Um, mm. I'd had trouble with uh, premenstrual mood changes not to the degree that they would really stop me functioning but that kind of got worse as I kind of went through my 20s and 30s I didn't actually go to medical school until I was 27 I actually started work in fund management in the city but it really wasn't what I wanted to do and so I kind of went back and did graduate medicine in my late 20s and I actually think it was probably the stress of medical school and working as a junior doctor that kind of it, you know, highlighted my own menstrual symptoms and I made life feel a bit more unmanageable. And by that point in my early 30s, I'd had several surgeries for the endometriosis. I mm. tried various hormonal treatments um, for the endometriosis and also the premenstrual symptoms, including the pill, um, you know, various different pills. I tried various different exclusion diets. I'd seen complementary health practitioners, you know, acupuncture, homeopathy, herbal medicine, Reiki. I'd had some benefit from some things for some amount of time, but nothing really long lasting. Um, so you must have felt really bad. <laughs> it was yeah, really I, severe to have all these treatments and interventions and to try all these things. One mm-hmm. must be in a quite desperate state. Is that fair to say? Or Yes, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, from when I started my periods, they were always unpleasant. And I thought, well, this is just part of being a girl and a woman and this, I kind of have to deal with it. But I I think as I got older, I realised not everybody struggled quite as much. Um, there's probably a handful of us in my, in my med school year who would sometimes be off from lectures because we were in so much pain, for example. But I did realise then that that wasn't normal. But yeah, I, but in my early 30s, I was feeling fairly desperate um, because I did think, how can I function and safely and, and offer care to patients when I'm struggling myself? But it was very hard to do all the things that you need to do to look after yourself with a junior doctor rotor and when you're doing night shifts and like even, you know, there's no time to stop when you're kind of doing a 12 hour night shift and it would take all the good intentions. You take something healthy to eat halfway through the night, but I never really felt like salad at three o'clock in the morning. And I'd be much more likely to grab, I don't know, a Mars bar or whatever I could find, <laughs> Do you know, that, that kind of thing, which just wasn't helpful. So that coupled with the lack of sleep and, and everything else, I think probably, you know, it certainly didn't help things and it really kind of highlighted everything. And I think I just became much more aware in the patient, in my patients as well, of, of things. I did quite, I did quite a lot of pediatrics actually, but I noticed it a lot more in teenage girls who would come in re- with recurrent pain. And and you talk about it, but often that was overlooked. The gynecology aspect really wasn't talked about that much in pediatrics. And then I, when I ended up trying to, or training as a GP, because I, I initially started as a psychiatry trainee, and at that point I realised the big connection between mental health and hormonal health. And that was a whole other thing, but. I, I then went into general practice and I started noticing a lot of women who were coming in with seemingly kind of a random array of symptoms, but a lot of them seemed to be in their 40s, particularly, or late 30s, at 40s, early 50s, and realising that there was this the whole perimenopause was a massive problem for a lot of women. And I think that kind of drove my interest. And then I ended up having surgery when I was 35 to remove my ovaries to treat the endometriosis and the severe premenstrual symptoms. And I was under the care of a really good gynecologist. He's compassionate and very knowledgeable, but I still wasn't prepared for what happened. Although I'm lucky in that I wasn't put in menopause because of cancer. And so I obviously don't have that personal experience. 
um, and I'm able to take HRT, I um, I naively thought it would once the ovaries were gone, if you just give myself some HRT and I'd just verticomas be normal and healthy and I could just get on with my life. And it, it was a massive wake up call, I think, the impact of surgical menopause. And I realised that doctors around me um, were treating it much the same as natural menopause, which is, as we all know, is not particularly well managed a lot of the time anyway. Um, and not looking at a woman in her 30s having her ovaries removed as being different from a woman who's gone through a natural transition at, say, 50, 51. Yeah, um, which is why I was so excited to talk <laughs> to you about, because I did feel we needed a home. And so this is why I decided to launch the podcast. And I felt so many people after cancer are excluded from this menopause yeah. conversation. And it's so important we have the menopause conversation. But then I think, gosh, if my community feels excluded. There must be other communities who feel Definitely. excluded as well. And I, I think that inclusivity is really one of my values so that we can make sure everyone feels heard and everyone feels they're part of a greater community. I can't help but think that your journey from when you were 13 to 35, did you say you mm. had your ovaries removed? That must have been a really long time of many small setbacks as well, because if you haven't got the energy or if in so much pain that you can't go to university for your lectures, you're going to be a little bit worse off if the same happens when you're a junior doctor. And I can't just help but think if we have these things happen to us constantly, sort of chipping away and making it harder for us to be like our peers, mm. how much harder you would have had to work for you to be where you're at today. That's exhausting. Yeah, I guess it was exhausting. I, I suppose other people go through worse. I, it, I just... It was tiring, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I suppose actually, though, in a way, because I'm a doctor, I suppose I see more than the average person the struggles that a lot of people go through. So yeah. maybe my, you know, it, I suppose I wasn't really under the impression that everybody else has a super easy life and I'm just struggling. It, I suppose if I looked at my peers, it felt a little bit like that to some degree. But then I also, I suppose, being in that privileged position of having you know insight into other people's worlds you know you know that a lot of people don't talk about their struggles to the outside world yeah, yeah. but yeah it yes it has been it has been hard but I don't know in a way I, I feel that although it's been a bit of a difficult journey in many ways it's also given me a lot of stuff as well like I've managed to connect with a lot of people I like to think that my experience will then help other people as well. I'm not saying sure all you've... doctors can experience how what they're treating their patients. And I guess it's unrealistic for us to expect that. And I know what I've experienced isn't necessarily going to be the same for somebody else. But I think I can empathise and I, I hope that kind of shows and that helps people. So, And it will. And you've moved your practice on now with your colleague, Mandy Leonhard, mm -hmm. haven't you, into a book, The Complete Guide to POI and Early Menopause. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be amazing as well, because there would be more people that can benefit from your knowledge, personal experience, professional experience. And so it's brilliant if you can sort of share that wealth of knowledge across a wider audience. Yeah, well, there is there is such a lack of um, of knowledge or kind of, I suppose, good, solid evidence based knowledge out there, because I think we've got the Internet, obviously, and you can find anything on there. And I think sometimes, especially if you're not necessarily scientifically trained or you're not so aware of sources it, it can be a very very confusing place I found it confusing as a doctor who and I've done two kind of quite rigorous degrees you know sometimes sort of sorting out the, the the best evidence and stuff sometimes and you clutch onto straw you know you're clutching at straws sometimes trying to find the answer to your particular issue at that time and 
sometimes you're pulled in by engaging speakers you find online and but you have to be very mindful of what you're looking at I think that's ultimately what we wanted to do with the book is kind of work together so it wasn't just one of us putting our thoughts and stuff down on paper and and actually really look at the evidence and and pull everything together in one resource and Mm. and hopefully make things more accessible and we do obviously have links in the book to you know support you know charities and things like that and further and evidence-based websites where people can go um because I I, yeah there's just so much out there now not all of it is helpful some of it's quite damaging Mm. and it's just trying to bring it together really especially when you're up like I can remember in the early months after my diagnosis I was up at three o'clock in the morning I couldn't sleep my anxiety was pumping through my body and I was on the world wide web and it was like a rabbit hole and I was being Mm. sucked (laughs) sucked down and the next morning I woke up and I was none the wiser (laughs) and I think that's what happens to so many people take me back into the time before your surgery and I want to hear a little bit more about that decision because it's a mm-hmm. big decision to make. Whereas I think many people listening to our conversation today, I think the decision was made for them because maybe yeah. off. And we want to talk about that in a moment. But you had medical intervention. You said you were on the pill. You had other hormone treatment for your endometriosis. Was there other stuff that you did, although you were a doctor, that maybe didn't make so much sense scientifically? Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose some more of the complementary therapies, although there's some evidence and we can talk about that for, in terms of menopause kind of later. Um, yeah, I, I was randomly trying certain exclusion diets and stuff. And then there might be, I suppose, a bit of evidence for some of them or you can understand where some of the things come from. But I, you know, I was trying certain things like that, like I cut out wheat because I've heard that that could potentially be be good for you know endometriosis but it didn't do anything for me and I actually this is a long time ago now though because I ended up eating quite a few of the kind of pro, quite a lot of processed gluten-free things so I probably went for a, to a less of a whole food diet which was not is really not the right thing to do and I think there's probably a bit more it's easier really to do that in a more healthy way now um but you know I'd, I'd, I'd clutch onto anything and just think oh this might help um I I yeah tried various uh, complementary to acupuncture although there probably is some evidence and you know somewhere along the, that, that that could you know potentially help but I wasn't really looking at that this is before I did medicine so I wasn't really looking at it so much from that point of view it didn't help me personally um, one thing that did help me which we don't have enough scientific evidence necessarily to recommend it although I think things are changing slightly but it's Reiki in terms of energy medicine that actually helped me with my pain and that was one of the only things that did help but that doesn't we can't say why that might be. And I'm prepared to think, well, there could be some placebo effect, but um, that that helps me more than a lot of things. Um, no, no, not, not long term. But I know that looking, you know, a lot of my medical peers would be like, what, you tried Reiki? And I have to say that it, it was kind of because I was clutching at straws and I thought, well, it's not going to hurt me. It's energy medicine. What can this, you know, do? But it, it did actually help me. But whether it was the practitioner, he was an incredibly calming guy, a really nice guy to kind of talk with as well. So we did chat a little bit. And but it was a hands-off therapy. Um, mm. But I did feel better after that. But again, it's I mean, there's, you know, how much of it is just that taking time for yourself and everything else. But I have seen some other people who've had positive effects, and I know that Reiki is sometimes used in you know, hospices and cancer centres and stuff to, um, you know, maybe there is something to it. We just don't understand that yet. Um, but obviously think, it's not like there's peer reviewed papers on Reiki. So, <laughs> Yes, no, exactly. And I think the beautiful thing about you sharing is 
this as a doctor is some things we can't explain and we can't always explain why we're feeling a certain way and we can't explain why something might work for us or is it placebo or is it not but what's great about it it's really hopeful because even if it doesn't make sense for anyone in terms of statistics or science if it makes sense for you then I think it's power over to each one of us to go for it isn't it if it's helpful in that moment of time yeah. it doesn't make sense to anyone else I'd hate to think anyone's stopping doing it or looking for certain things because sometimes we feel a little bit at our wit's end, mm -hmm. especially when you're thrown into early menopause after a cancer diagnosis and it's been, you haven't had a choice in any of it. Exactly. And I think that's it really. And you said you want to know a little bit more about the choice in my, but I suppose obviously it's not the same as a cancer diagnosis. My life wasn't in danger and it was in that sense, but I didn't really feel I had a choice as well. At the same time, I felt that I couldn't carry on how I was feeling. Not that I was yeah. planning to do anything about that, but I, I, I felt that I had no life. I was seeing my friends going out and doing stuff and having energy and getting on with their lives. And I just felt that I was becoming more and more reclusive and you know, managing to get to work most of the time, but really struggling in pain. And my mood was really low. Um, and the other thing is my, my cycles were always so irregular. I could never plan anything. So it wasn't even like I thought, well, I know this is going to be bad. It was just bad most of the time. Um, I couldn't exercise because of the pain. And, you, you know, you're reading all of this stuff saying oh exercise is helpful for things like endometriosis and premenstrual mood disorders and but I couldn't even you know do it. I remember collapsing on a just a, a little run that around my village even before my period was due but because the pain had already started to come and I just couldn't keep going and so it'd be like sometimes for two or three weeks maybe I'd be able to do something but I could never keep up anything consistently because the symptoms would just come back you know, I couldn't even consider whether or not I would wanted to have children because I couldn't conceive of how I could literally be a mother and, uh, mm. and look after children when I couldn't look after myself. So I think I really felt that I didn't have much of a choice, but that's not yeah. to say I was in the same camp as people who've gone through cancer because it's completely different. But it was a, it was a last resort. I, I, I found a letter recently because we moved house a few months ago and it was a letter that I had written to the consultant begging him to give me a hysterectomy and etherectomy at that point wow. because I just said I have no I have no life <laughs> and I just no I was married at 30 and then I felt very guilty because I thought I don't think my husband signed up for this at one point I was worried I was gonna have to give up work completely so for me I felt like it was I, I had to give it a shot um, and for me it's been worth it but it's not been easy so wow and you mentioned PMD, which is premenstrual disorder. Mm -hmm. There is a more drastic thing, PMDD. Is that, can you explain that? Were you diagnosed with that? What so is it? The reason I say premenstrual disorder, it's basically that's an umbrella term for lots of hormone sensitivity disorders. So there's PMS or PMT. So a lot of people have heard of that, where it, probably around 30 to 40 percent of women and you know people who are assigned female at birth, but then you know, non-binary and, and trans men may also experience you know mood disturbance in the lead up to their period but also you can get physical symptoms so breast tenderness bloating headaches joint pains there's 150 symptoms for PMS essentially the difference really between PMS and PMDD premenstrual dysphoric disorder which is the more severe disorder it really is mainly a matter of degree and PMDD was a term that was kind of coined in the US to differentiate really and it's only really come over to the UK in the last few years I mean, the difference really between PMS and 
PMDD is, is as I say, it is a matter of degree, but I suppose how much things are affecting your functioning and your quality of life. So yes, if you're say a little bit tearful or low or irritable, but you you manage to go to work, and I'm not saying it's really pleasant, but you might manage to get to work, you might go out, it's not going to affect your relationships negatively. And it may be that some lifestyle changes or even trying something like the pill or something like that could be helpful for you. That probably more in the PMS camp. But if you're somebody who is completely debilitated every month and, you know, some, some women experience suicidal thoughts or they um, severe anxiety, they can't get out of bed, they they don't feel able to function at work, they may leave relationships, things like that. That would be more in the PMDD camp. Mm-hmm. But it is it is hard. And I think it's a slightly false dichotomy because it's 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 not like it's a completely separate disorder, although there are some genetic links with people who've got PMDD. There's also mm-hmm. something called premenstrual exacerbation, which is the worsening of, of, of disorders that you already have. So it could be a psychiatric illness or OCD or bipolar disorder. Or it could how many people, how many women get diagnosed with such a drastic form of, yeah, having EMDD? We think it's around 5%, but we don't really know. Wow. A lot of women aren't diagnosed, a lot of it isn't picked up. And then the more I see of it, the I don't know. It, it's not just one thing. So this is why I probably use the term premenstrual disorder more than just PMDD, because I think it's like I say, it's a bit of an umbrella term. There's lots of different mm-hmm. subgroups within that diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. And it can be hard to differentiate premenstrual exacerbation from PMDD and the two can coexist. But essentially, it's the worst, you know, it's well, the symptoms are worse in the luteal phase of the cycle. So they lead up to a period and they should improve with your period. And people who have got very clear PMDD diagnosis will often feel that they are after ovulation, think there's like a switch goes on and then um, they, then everything lifts when their, their period arrives. But over the years, that kind of gets muddied because if you're not believed you go to a doctor, you're not taken seriously, you can get secondary mental health effects. So depression could develop anxiety. I mean, in my case, I was diagnosed with a severe premenstrual disorder or syndrome because we don't really use the term PMDD. Mm. And I, in all honesty, I don't know if that's what I'd be diagnosed with now or if mine was more premenstrual mm. exacerbation of anxiety because I've got a long-standing history of anxiety so mm. it's very hard to know but was I anxious and low because I knew my periods were going to all be so awful the whole thing's a bit of a mess really the vicious <laughs> so. the vicious cycle and you know what I can't help but think if for people who are listening today how many of us have had really difficult times with their periods, with their cycles, and then they've had cancer and the cancer layer added on top of that. Yeah. Because the more you speak to women, the more you realize we've had really difficult histories. Mm-hmm. And often it was spoken about and often it wasn't spoken about. And sometimes we just managed to put up with it. And sometimes it really impacts your life. And then you get to that stage where you're suddenly thrown into early menopause and you've got to digest not just your history, but also what's happening to you now. And of course, we're all in a muddle. How can you yeah. just come out the other end and just be, oh, I'm sorted. It's not possible. Like you said, even yeah. if you go on HRT, you've had all that trauma to process yeah. all these years of feeling, I guess, out of control, right? Because you never yeah. knew when it was going to stop you again and when you weren't going to be able to just get through the days and your weeks and yeah no you're right and I think I just the work I do as well I, and you must you know, see this you realize how much women put up with I think yes 
with our hormones. I, I, it, it's kind of astonishing, and I think it's good that there's you know, much more discussion. But it's, um, yeah, women still aren't taken seriously, and I know things are changing, but probably not fast enough. So. Yeah. yeah. And maybe for anyone listening today, it'll be a really good exercise to think back of how was, when was your first period? Can you remember it? What happened in your teens, in your early 20s? And where are you at now? So we can honor our journey yeah. for whatever it was. We can, you know, thank our old self for getting us to where we are today. However hard the journey was, you've been on a little journey there. And it's it's good to look back sometimes so that we can say, okay, this is where I've been. This is where I'm at now. And where do I want to head towards? Exactly. You think you should acknowledge that. I mean, it must be with, with can, you know, cancer and, and stuff as well. You kind of like grieve like what you were you'd envisioned for your future so that's quite traumatic and then if you look back and realize you'd had a difficult time with your periods for cancer and things like that that's like Mm. say it's another layer Um, yeah which is why I really wanted to talk to you about because most of the conversations I have they're looking forward so this is our problem this is where we're at now and how can we find solutions so that we can feel better but I always think we can't underestimate everything that's happened up it has an impact and it? and it impacts Huge. what we do going forward and I think sometimes we don't acknowledge that um, um, and that Huge. can be sometimes what's holding us back as well um, yeah and our belief system the people we trust all of those things really sort of muddle into our decision making process at the moment and it's really important that we at least have a bit of an awareness of that like you say it's so bad when it holds us back otherwise I think yeah, it doesn't allow us to really come up with a plan if we're burdened with so much history sometimes. Yeah, I agree. So can you just set the scene a little bit, just for a few minutes, of how does menopause differ if you've had radiation to your pelvis, for example, if you've had a hysterectomy, so surgical menopause, or if you're going through active cancer treatment like mm-hmm. chemo or something like tamoxifen that stops you from having those hormones. Can you? Is there a differentiation and can you just set the scene? Yeah, so menopause as a result of cancer is obviously very different to natural menopause, which tends to, you know, will take place over several years. There'll be the perimenopausal transition where your ovaries produce, you know, fewer eggs and you ovulate less over time and your overall hormone levels just just diminish more slowly. It can be problematic. And I'm not saying, you know, diminishing anyone's experience with natural menopause. But I think one of the biggest difference with, you know, cancer treatments, you will either have a medical and or surgical menopause. So we call that an iatrogenic or induced menopause. So that means it's the menopause has come about as a result of medical or surgical treatment. So radiation and chemotherapy would lead to um, a medical or, you know, a menopause. And that's where, you know, medical treatment has kind of damaged the ovaries, essentially. The thing is, it's hard to say exactly, you know, the different, you know, difference between the two, because everyone's experience will be different and different forms of radiation, depending on where you've had radiation and types of chemotherapy and, and for what cancer and what indication will all vary. But ultimately, if you end up in menopause, it can either be deliberate as it would be, say, for, you know, for, for, can- for breast cancer treatment, if it's estrogen driven, just wanting to switch off ovarian function. That's another thing. So you can have chemo, but you can also have injections and sort of to switch off your ovarian function and things like, um, you know, tamoxifen to kind of block the block the estrogen and, and stuff like that as well. So that's deliberate. You're deliberately targeting that. But others come about as a side effect of it. So if you have radiation to your pelvis, for example, to the brain, that, that can affect either the, you know, you know, the glands in the brain that communicate with the ovaries um, and means that you don't 
you, you don't have a cycle or can affect the, you know, just damage the ovaries themselves. So they're no longer, you know, longer able to ovulate. And so it's, it's either comes about as a result of, you know, either as an indirect or a direct side effect of treatment. Um, with some of the cancer treatments, it can be that you may, it, it could be sudden. So if you've had a whole body radiation or you've had pelvic radiation that that could you know be quite sudden or it could be quite subtle so you could have had radiation to another part of your body but the ovaries have somehow been affected and that that could happen further down the line when you have surgical menopause so say you have your ovaries removed uh, then that's just immediate you're plunged into kind of menopause at that point so you have a very sudden drop off in hormones what always strikes me is that so few people they're put into these treatments, they're put into surgery. And every week I get emails and messages and contacts from people who say they haven't had follow-up support mm. after that. And do you see that? Or is this just what, I mean, how does it really work? How do we then access someone like you? I often feel women are, they describe it to me as if they're saying I've been pushed off a cliff and there is yeah. no safety net. I think the focus with cancer, and I suppose rightly so, is obviously it's it's trying to save somebody's life. And the yeah. focus often is is around that because that, that's the most urgent thing. And I guess most oncologists that that will be their focus. But if you have a good oncologist, they should obviously be counseling patients and saying the side effects of treatment are like, you know, could be quite significant. But obviously, if the alternative is that we're not treating your cancer, most people are still going to opt for it. But just saying that as a result, you your ovaries may not produce the hormones that you need to kind of generally keep you healthy or make you feel as well, or it might could impact your quality of life and affecting fertility and things like that. But and, and sometimes this is said and skirted over. And I think it might depend if you need an emergency surgery or emergency treatment. So you're probably going to have less in-depth discussion. But that should always be discussed. But I, I agree with you. It's it's not uncommon what you're saying. Unfortunately, the, the follow-up care for cancer patients, especially in this area, is really lacking. There are some big centres where they might have, like, you know, Chelsea and Westminster and stuff in London, where they might have support groups um, mm. for women who've ended up in in you know, POI or early menopause, a result of cancer treatment, but this isn't the case across the board, certainly. Mm. Um, and some places they have access to psychologists who can help with that and, you know, and, and menopause specialists. So there should sometimes be a menopause specialist in the oncology team, but that doesn't always happen. It's very hard to, you know, to how, how can everyone access this because it isn't equally available. That's exactly what I always struggle with because my care was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I saw a menopause specialist before I had my surgery and I was really talked through my options at various appointments That's of really what good. my options were after my particular kind of cancer. And so I was so shocked when I set up my first Facebook group and hundreds and hundreds of women came in and shared their experiences and everyone's experience was almost the opposite to mine. I yeah. thought, I can't, I can't, I didn't believe it. I thought they're all exaggerating, but of course they're not. And I just realized I was extremely lucky to be where I was at in this stage after my treatment where I was at and I just want to bridge the gap a little bit so that we can always share it's it's incredibly frustrating so the British Menopause Society have a list of accredited menopause specialists so people can go to their website and search for somebody local to them if it's on the I mean ideally everybody who's had a cancer diagnosis that could affect their you know their menopause or affect their ovarian health should be referred to a menopause specialist but we know this doesn't happen but if there is somebody local to you you can refer it on the NHS but the weights are just incredible at the moment and then there is the option of private but that the, you know that's not open to everybody and 
I suppose even I speak from my own experience, uh, we can't see everybody. Um, I think that that's the thing, you have a, have a limit. And a lot of people I know just are, are not able to offer any more appointments at the moment because there's such a demand. But it's trying to kind of, you know, that, that's probably the first place to go is the British Menopause Society and where you can go to find a specialist and either requesting referral on the NHS or, or potentially looking for somebody privately. But it's difficult, even as a doctor, we, a lot of us who are qualified aren't able to provide the services on the NHS because there isn't the funding and you have to be, you have to do, you can't just set up an NHS menopause clinic, you're just not allowed to, you have to, you know, you're regulated and have to be commissioned. And I mean, I, I did do a year in an NHS menopause clinic locally to me and then they decommissioned my post. Uh. They said, though, they said there isn't a need, but there was a need and I now know with the consultant I was working with he said that the you know the wait the waiting times are off that you know they've, they've just gone crazy he can't manage the Which... number of patients coming in and so I, I don't I, I struggle to understand it I think a lot of the commissioning decisions are incredibly short-sighted yes um, and I think it's another yeah. one of those women's health inequalities you know I, I do believe we've been underserved and undereducated for decades definitely Definitely. Absolutely. Which is why when we have conversations like today, I'm hoping that someone will walk away thinking, I know I can do X, Y and Z or mm-hmm. Hannah said this and maybe I, I can try and implement that. What you said to me earlier is that you had the option to go on HRT. And it's one thing I'm always really, really keen. I want every single cancer patient to understand if HRT is an option for them or not. Mm-hmm. Often they're just being given blanket advice and that's no. Mm-hmm. And then no one even dares to say but no why can you please explain because we feel so shell-shocked after a cancer diagnosis but there are certain types of cancer where HRT is absolutely a possibility and even those patients say after a bowel cancer surgery for example HRT could be a possibility couldn't it but even then it's often not offered which drives me mad I know Um, which cancers do you know are more easily to go on HRT because they share your story then don't they you know in a way they yeah have treatment options like you had well there's, there's lots of it, it, it again it, it's it's quite difficult to give general advice because everybody's yeah. situation is different and some cancers that technically fall under the same group you know they, 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 the same treatment options aren't always going to be available so it depends on something like hormone receptor status and things like that and there are for example there are certain lung cancers that are hormone you know hormonally driven that you wouldn't give HRT to but there are there are wow. other cancers in the thorax where you could give them uh, you could give HRT some wow. other cancers and things like that we shouldn't be giving HRT but again it's very individual so it's impossible to give you know a blanket advice across the board but things like can I, mean, I just I mean, stop you there can I just stop you and thank you for saying it because it just reinforces the point that each person listening to this needs specialist care (laughs) and don't stop banging on about getting in front of a menopause specialist because this is exactly the reason isn't it you just can't give blanket advice and the GP won't be equipped to help you so no I mean sometimes some GPs are menopause specialists but you probably need you need more than the 10 minute appointment even you know to to sit down and walk through this stuff and I think that's one of the problems with general practice at the moment there isn't the capacity for GPs to offer that even if they want to and you do really need to be seen in a specialist setting I think a lot of time people are falsely told they can't take HRT because it feels like the safest thing to stay at the time but then we're overlooking that woman's quality of life and that is that person's life and it should these decisions should be driven um, following a fully informed kind of consultation and, and understanding the risks, benefits and everything of, of treatment or not having treatment. I mean, in 
in the book, we actually, uh, we, we've done a table on about is HRT recommended? In fact, I've, I've tried to open the page now because it's something that d- depends yeah. on the type of cancer that you, mm, you've mm, got, mm. for example. But things like cervical cancer, people are often told that they um, they can't have HRT, but but they can. They're, there's generally not hormonally driven cancer, for example. And it, it, things like womb cancer, endometrial cancer, it very much depends on the stage of cancer. Right. With, so, with mm-hmm. um, breast cancer. Oh, yeah, okay, so I've We've got a little table here. We've we've tried to make it as concise as, as we could do, but it's like type of cancer, and we've listed them. And then is HRT an option? For some of them, we've got things like limited data is available, but maybe an option depending on type. So that's for something like fallopian tube and primary peritoneal cancer. It's normally treated as ovarian cancer, but it's very much going to depend on the thing. And it's like with vulval and vaginal cancer, generally these it, HRT would be safe, but um, it's it's not always for some of the some the rarer types of cancer thyroid cancer yes say we can give it certain brain tumors it depends on the type of brain tumor having said that i never really say to anybody oh gosh it's never an option for you because it really might depend when you had cancer how when when your treatment was how long you know long ago that was what you're struggling with now because sometimes people will choose to take or you know would, would like the option to take HRT even if they've been told so they've had an estrogen positive breast cancer but maybe it was 15 years ago but they're struggling hugely with symptoms actually it may be a low dose HRT may be appropriate for them I mean our nice guidelines on menopause do say that it should we shouldn't be offering that first line. We should look at all of the other options that we can help um, in terms of symptoms and long-term health. But actually, you know, there are some women who do need to go on it because their quality of life is so bad without it. And I think women should be given that option. But what's important for one woman is not necessarily the same for somebody else. And yeah, I, I do meet women who say they understand there may be a small risk of recurrence if they try HRT and they've had an estrogen positive breast cancer. But they say that they they're struggling so much they would rather they would rather have a better quality of life and take that risk yeah Um, and I think and it also really we spoke about that earlier didn't we I said it's really important timing is really key in this because in your first months and years after a diagnosis everything is about survival and you just need to get through active treatment it's getting you to that next stage and it's when I finish chemo and once I finish radiation and once I finish this and it's sort of just angling forward and then maybe years further down the lane, you realize, gosh, you're surviving, you're living, you've got yeah. a quality of life. And how are you going to make the best of your time on this planet? And then exactly. we have other conversations with our practitioners. So it's important to, to recognize that as well. Exactly. So what, and what, yeah, what was appropriate for you at the beginning may not be what you know appropriate or what you choose later further down the line. Like, again, it's in yeah. the, and that's, I think you were saying earlier, when you're thrown into that, you know, world of cancer and it's so terrifying and all you want to do is survive, that's going to be your primary aim. But like you say, when you kind of come emerge a bit further down the line, then you think, actually, this is great. I'm here, but I still need I need to have better quality of life. And it, I get frustrated because there's still some misinformation about local estrogen. So not just so systemic HRT is what you take, you know, so you might have gel or tablets, patches, things like that. Um, But actually local estrogen, which is estrogen given vaginally, it can be incredibly helpful for vaginal symptoms, whether it's pain, dryness, irritation, bladder symptoms, urinary frequency, all of these things. Um, And, and this is safe and effective treatment for, for, pretty much well most most people there's very very few kind of 
what we call contraindications to treatment. So even women on active breast cancer treatment can safely take local estrogens. Yes. And yeah. they're such low dose, they're not going to have an, an impact on, you know, we know from studies, really, there's no impact on long term survival. And, and um, yeah. it's not, or certainly it's not going to, in, sorry, actually, not, I don't think we've done the studies that necessarily looking at long term survival, but there's no, there's no association with an increased risk of cancer if you've, yeah. if you've taken vaginal estrogens. You know, there will be a few cases if you've got vaginal bleeding that's undiagnosed, you clearly wouldn't use them. But even if you're if you're on tamoxifen, you can have local estrogens like Vagifem or there's something called Estring or there's Blissel, there's Invagis, there's all these different things. can make types. a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Because if you're in pain or you've, um, you're you constantly needing a wee and nothing's improved, you know, these things, it does affect your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. So these things can massively improve. And I think why I always I do want to talk about HRT because it's one thing our cancer community also feels uncomfortable about and we also have this bigger menopause conversation where I had a message the other day of a lady saying gosh it seems like the whole world wants to go on HRT every perimenopausal woman and it's not an option for me so I just can't relate to anything anyone is saying but you went on HRT and it didn't fix everything for you is that right to say yeah um I mean I was naive I suppose you know because I was so desperate for the surgery to be the salvation for my health I suppose and I thought well once the ovaries and my womb were gone which were causing a lot of the trouble I figured that you know everything would be fine as long as I had add back hormones because uh, obviously my levels of estrogen progesterone testosterone completely dropped off the planet but um it wasn't that simple, partly because I don't absorb well through the skin. So a lot of estrogen, because estrogen is the main hormone that is, is what, what drives a lot of the menopausal symptoms and has the effects on our long term health that like increases the risk of osteoporosis and heart disease and things like this. And if you take oral estrogen, so by mouth, there's a small increased risk of blood clots. So generally people prefer to give estrogen through the skin now, but only about 20 to 30 percent of us don't absorb well through the skin. And so I was having increasingly higher doses of estrogen, still felt dreadful. And my blood tests were showing I wasn't absorbing it. Uh, I tried oral, but I have a history of migraines and oral can sometimes make the migraines worse, which it did with me. And that was hard on a daily basis. Having I had a, ter- a you know headache, feeling sick a lot of the time. I thought I can't cope, cope with this. So I ended up having hormone implants, which are not very easily accessible. I did get them on the NHS initially, but that's been really hard to kind of maintain. A lot of women who end up going down the street will find the same. It's not equal access in the UK. It's big centres, again, like Chelsea and Westminster that offer this. But obviously, everyone knows the state the NHS is in, unfortunately, and clinics were often cancelled and stuff like that. So, um, and because I needed a bit more predictability, I've had to pay for them. They're not cheap. They're like £500, £600. You know, it's it's expensive and not possible for a lot of people. But these implants are tight, like a tiny grain of rice that put in your either your abdomen or your buttock and they release estrogen and or testosterone, depending on what you go for. And that made a massive difference to my quality of life because I was I could absorb it and it didn't trigger migraines quite the same way. Um, but they're very, very unpredictable. So, yes, you absorb it, but sometimes your levels can shoot too high or when they run out, they suddenly drop again, they drop off a cliff and that can trigger symptoms again. So it's 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 been a bit tough because it's not been I I tend to have a few months where things feel balanced and then when the levels are falling or rising I'd struggle again 
But yeah. I, I think I, in the early days, I think I found I used to think I just need to get the right HRT and then I'll be fine. I've realised a lot of it is, is not HRT driven. So there's so many other things that control how I feel or how my body responds to hormone treatment. But then this would apply whether or not you're able to take HRT. So mm. how well I'm eating, sleeping, mm. exercising um, and everything else. And there are other things I don't want people to come away thinking, oh, HRT is the only medical option because there are other treatments as well so we can yes and i've had a whole i've had a whole podcast episode on that with the lovely dr annie's Mukherjee, and i think it needs to be repeated and repeated and repeated that we have options definitely there are options and whether or not you're on hrt there can be other medical options that can help and complementary treatment options as well i mean from my point of view exercise has probably been one of my biggest saviors um really because i think fatigue has been one of my problems with surgical menopause so when we have our ovaries taken away you are plunged into surgical menopause and when we've had part of our endocrine system removed we're never going to be the same as a woman who's not had a you know we're we're never going to reach that baseline it's like it is managing a chronic condition regardless of how you get into surgical menopause you're never going to be the woman with ovaries again so uh, you know you've been castrated essentially so yeah that that is I suppose I had to go through some acceptance so there's probably some psychological work I definitely needed yeah, to do. yeah. So, coming to that but but exercise um I has found been enormously helpful in terms of managing my mood um and, and energy within reason I mean if you're completely exhausted for, for a variety of reasons pushing yourself beyond your limits isn't going to be helpful but regular mm. consistent cardiovascular exercise I like being out in nature so running cycling walking all of that stuff um, unfortunately I'm injured at the moment and that's been difficult oh. the last few months so I haven't been able to do a lot of that but I've just started going to the gym to do strength training because that's the other really important thing is is um you know maintaining muscle and bone mass um especially for women who can't take hormones i was going to say because that bone worry is real and it's you know we should be worried about our bones if we're thrown into menopause early and there is lots of things we can do every single day right yeah definitely so obviously weight bearing exercise is really important so that is like the walking running um dancing tennis all of that stuff body weight exercises and and also you know strength training and a lot of us aren't very good at doing that and I put myself in that camp because I was much more drawn to doing the cardiovascular stuff but I know how important it is to try and maintain if we contain our muscle mass that helps protect our bones helps protect our joints if we're putting our weight through our joints each day that that helps maintain bone density making a vitamin d supplement especially in this country is incredibly important and i think all year round because we don't even in the summer most of us are indoors or or we're not outdoors without kind of sun cream on for any length of time yeah vitamin d actually works with um, with the the estrogen receptor as well so it it can actually be helpful in terms of some of the mood and muscle um, and joint pain related symptoms as well so that that can be kind of helpful making sure you have a a diet that's rich in calcium and a a wide variety of of other um, kind of you know micronutrients as well because I know you wanted to talk a little bit about diet yeah and actually it's interesting you you bring all of this up now because I've recently had a bone scan two years after my last bone scan Mm. and because I was under such good care um, I think I had a baseline scan around the time of my surgery and then two years later and, and now and my last bone scan wasn't so great so there was deterioration and now my bones have improved and so I just want to share that with everyone because I want to say there is hope (laughs) no there definitely is hope and I think that's it because I think 
although it's brilliant that there's you know people are talking about menopause I think there's a lot of people who are becoming quite scared if they don't feel like or if HRT isn't an option for them at the moment because we know that HRT prevents the breakdown of bone and and can help maintain your bone density but there there are other things and I've, I've seen this as well with women who've been very dedicated in terms of lifestyle changes and other things and obviously there are medications that you know that that can help um, de- de- depending on where you are. If, you, if you've been diagnosed with osteopenia or osteoporosis, and you know, yeah, and, to rheumatologist. And so, well. a couple of the things I've really changed is I've added the vitamin D all year round because yeah. I know it helps me absorb my calcium. I've really looked at adding loads of green leafy veg and mm-hmm. really made it my mission. And there are bone veg now in the house with my children. And I'm a keen yogi I teach yoga I've got a yoga school in Surrey and I've really started to make sure I bring more of my own body weight bearing exercise into my own yeah. practice and that so I think the reason I'm sharing it it, it wasn't big things I had to do it wasn't yeah. a huge overhaul of a change of lifestyle I didn't yeah. have to create a new way of exercising and it's so I wonder if isn't it's it? just consistency and if it's just fine-tuning and tweaking it so if anyone is out there thinking I already go on three walks a week I would want to say that's brilliant could you walk a little bit faster and for five minutes longer and yeah. maybe that's all we need to do right it's making exactly. small tweaks and like doing um like say listen even five to ten minutes of body weight exercises or you know bo- you know like yoga and um some you know some of those things would be really really helpful or even just yeah you know, lifting some weight. So even if it's just five to 10 minutes, like three times a week, it starts to make a difference. It's just changing your routine. But like you say, you don't have to do a massive overhaul of everything and it needs to be sustainable. But like the vitamin D, that makes a bit, you know, a big difference. And in terms of the calcium, I think it's important to say this doesn't have to be purely from dairy sources. And I've seen Mm. some women who come to me saying, I drink six pints of milk because I'm so worried about my bones. And I'm like, oh my goodness, because that's not particularly helpful. I mean, if you can look at, if you look at studies and stuff, actually a lot, a lot more dairy products can be quite detrimental to your health for a variety of reasons. And actually you should try and get calcium from a wide variety of sources. So, you know, like you said, plant, you know, leafy greens, particularly good and things like that, things like dried figs and apricots, um, certain ancient grains, beans, lentils, all of those things, phytoestrogens, tofu, tempeh, all of these things contain really important you know amounts of calcium if they've you know things like tofu being calcium set and things like that there's there's been big studies on bone health and diet and and saying that dairy shouldn't be the only source and if if anything we should limit dairy intake because too much can increase the fracture rate so there's a lot of confusing messages out there so Mm. um but the key thing is yes calcium is key but it's also other things like iodine boron um magnesium all of these things are very important to bone health and that's why having a really wide ranging uh, you know varied diet is important and if you just solely were focusing on things like yogurt for for bone health it's it's not going to be helpful um because all all the other all the other micronutrients are really important as well what spiked your interest in diet was it a very personal i want to change the way i eat or was it a professional sort of driven i I mean i've always been interested i suppose in in just general health and diet and lifestyle and things like that. I, uh, I suppose I wanted to kind of do better by myself. Um, yeah. So I started, I started looking at that. I, I became vegan seven years ago, I think. And I think a lot of that, I mean, and that was for kind of ethical environmental reasons, but I wanted to make sure I was doing diet, you know, eating as well as I could be. And I think that kind of certainly fueled my interest more. And then looking at, um, 
you know, the studies that we've got relating to menopausal health and long-term health, I realised that actually a plant-based diet is the most effective or, or, can't, or can be beneficial in terms of managing symptoms and long-term health. What do we know from studies? So I always wonder, what is it that we exactly know that can actually benefit us today? And what do we not know? Okay. Well, firstly, there's no... There's no diet that we can say is a menopause diet or, you know, but but there are dietary patterns that are associated Mm -hmm. with the reduced um, with reduced menopause symptoms and improved long term health outcomes, whether that's to do with bone health, heart health, brain health. And those are plant based diets. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to be exclusively plant based. But most of your diet should be based around whole plant foods. So, you know, fruits, vegetables, beans, lentils, whole grains, nuts, seeds, all of these things. And variety is key. And one of the reasons for this is this is a really largely anti-inflammatory diet pattern. So a lot of the symptoms that emerge in menopause are a result of kind of changes in the immune system and inflammatory markers in the body. If you have a diet that's very um, rich in processed foods or, you know, high fat dairy foods, lots of meat and things like that, that's quite a pro-inflammatory diet pattern. And we know from studies that, that, you know, lots of red meat because it's, you know, processed meat associated with a, you know, cancer risk anyway. So it's kind of, it's basically a more plant-based diet is more inherently anti-inflammatory, which is how it can help in terms of the, the symptoms. But it's, it's more than that. It's the effects on the microbiome in the gut, um, so yes. the gut bacteria we've got, and how our body processes hormones and the breakdown products of hormones. If you have a, a, a diet that's that's rich in um, plant-based foods, you tend to have less of an enzyme in your gut called beta-glucuronidase, which can reactivate hormonal breakdown products which can lead to hormonal fluctuations and leads you to increase um, your reabsorption of estrogen in the blood which can trigger symptoms and may increase your risk of estrogen associated disease so there's there's lots of things that like that that can kind of that can impact it as well so basically if you look at um you know if people when they go to the loo they're much more you far more hormone breakdown products and people who follow a plant-based diet than those who have a very meat heavy diet for example and so it tends to is your belt your body is is better really at metabolizing hormones medications things like that if if, because of the fiber and the, the changes in the gut the to the bacteria and stuff there and it's about feeding your gut you know health of prebiotics that's with fiber rich foods and that's what the healthy bacteria thrive on so there, um, I mean, there's lots of different things there but and so do you always think variety is key, really? Like you've mentioned, variety is key and sticking to as many plant-based. When you talk about plant-based foods, just to clarify, is that just vegetables because they're plants or would you include whole grains as well? No, no, no. no. So it's plant-based is, is ever, anything that comes from a plant. So vegetables, okay. fruits, nuts, seeds, whole grains, beans, lentils, okay. the, whole, the whole thing. Basically just anything that's not animal products, really. But you can, you know... I hand on I can't say you have to exclude all animal products to have a healthy diet but if you do they should be a, a minimal part of that and the best quality that you can have but there's no necessarily any benefit to adding those in it's just um you know the main makeup of your diet should be kind of plant-based fiber rich and variety is key because you want a wide range of micronutrients there and you know the the I don't know all the healthful things that the plants can do. So if you get a brightly yeah. coloured plate of vegetables and, and fruits and stuff, so you often say eat the rainbow and eat the alphabets, basically. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Can you can you explain why fibre is so important? Phytoestrogens often come up. The conversation about soy sometimes comes up. But what about fibre? Why? Because you mentioned that a couple of times now. 
Well, fibre, one, fibre helps obviously move things through the gut because a lot mm. of, if you're constipated, that can be a problem and, and also can affect how your body's dealing with hormonal breakdown products, whether it's your own or if you're dealing with breakdown products from medications or if you're dealing with other menopausal symptoms. So if you if you have a high fibre rich diet, you, you move things through the gut more quickly. So you excrete those more, you know, more easily. But it's the fibre really that produce, you know, provides the kind of the good prebiotics for the for the healthy bacteria in the gut if you have a low fiber diet you probably have less healthy bacteria species in your gut um mm-hmm. and they can that can be associated with worse you know menopausal symptoms or just general health as well so mm-hmm. yeah fiber is very important from that point of view also it can be um a fiber rich diet is, is in, helpful in terms of satiety so filling you up if you know I mean, I don't really want to talk about calories because obviously your diet shouldn't be based really around calories, but a lot of people will struggle with weight gain around menopause and things like that. And if you're including more fiber in your diet, um, you can you, you say you can fill up more easily than, than you would do if you're having a very kind of low fiber diet. It, it, you feel more satisfied when you've eaten as well. Yeah, I'm trying to think there's lots of other reasons why fiber is good. For my yeah, brain. great. Yeah. Uh, would you talk about diet to your patients? Or Yes, I do. But do there's, there's often not enough time to talk about it in any kind of yeah. great detail, because a lot of women will come to me about HRT or the medical side of it and want to learn about yeah. that. Um, yeah. And often we need time to understand their story, where they're at, what they've tried before. Yeah. I, t- I have a lifestyle tip sheet I share with them and say that what we know is that more plant-based foods is, is associated. So even I mean, one of the things I do say is just add in, you know, think about adding in, you know, one more plant to each meal, or say if you have, say, porridge for breakfast, maybe if you have cow's milk, maybe switch it for soya milk, which is the same in terms of proteins um, content and stuff like that's the most nutritious plant-based milk and maybe add a handful of frozen berries or chopped up apple on top so little things like that can make a difference or if somebody's having toast and jam could that be toast and kind of unsweetened peanut butter or could Mm. it be kind of molasses and tahini that's got iron and calcium in it things like that whole grain bread instead of just white processed bread or uh, you know if you've got having a lunch and you have you know a sandwich can you add a little bit more to the salad in that could you have um I don't know if you're hummus just you know add add, you know add some radishes and carrots and stuff like that so it's more about that or if you having uh you know a lot of people like things like spaghetti bolognese can you make spaghetti bolognese with say soya mints or mushrooms or lentils or could you halve the meat and add lentils and and stuff into that and just increase the sneak the veg and the the plant-based foods in that way so you don't have, I think people panic and think, oh gosh, yes, do I need to become veggie and vegan overnight? No, that's not what we're saying. It's just, just try and include more plants. And then, then, then you can kind of almost crowd out the stuff that's probably less beneficial for your health and bring more of the healthy stuff in. Yeah, um, I think that's exactly what happened to me when in the early days I started to change my diet from one day to the next. And I focused on loads of plants. Initially, it was all about what can I add, what can I add? And before I knew it, other things that were less healthy have kind of fallen off my plate. And yeah. so it was a, quite a nice side effect of trying to add more variety. And um, you can, you know, it, it does, it, it, it can, some people, it can spark new interest and stuff and think you, you yeah. look at things in a different way. I mean, a lot of people in Britain still eat quite meat and tea veg, and then it can be quite hard to think, well, what, what do I do? Like, you're not going to necessarily yeah. replace a, a lamb chop with a lump of tofu. That might not work. <laughs> But um, it, it, instead, just looking at, you know, what things might you in, enjoy or just maybe looking at a new recipe and just think, trying one new thing a week. And um, then it kind of opens up a new world of kind of cuisine for you as well. 
Um, so, but you mentioned phytoestrogens because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of myths really about that. And I mean, this, this the evidence there is quite clear now that that soya in your diet um, is actually beneficial, especially if you've had breast cancer and things like that, or hormone dependent cancer. It's associated with a reduced risk of recurrence. It's not, I can't say you must you know, have this and it's definitely going to reduce your risk, but there's no association of increased risk. And if anything, it can be helpful. Wow. because there was a lot of confusion always wasn't there that women and I've got a, a, a lady now she said to me recently I finally managed to see a menopause specialist I didn't really have any help the only thing she kept telling me is not to eat soy and she even brought up a fact sheet and I was I was so frustrated about it because it's not yeah. what I hear from so many people like you so but there is confusion obviously even within the medical professional yes there is and I think uh, I would be interested to know what fact sheet she was shown because the yeah. update evidence is that that is not the case. And we're looking at studies of thousands and thousands of women from Caucasian and Asian backgrounds. Um, there's a big study in America which looked at it and showed that it was associated with improved health outcomes, if anything. Brilliant. And no yeah. increased risk of recurrence. And I think the confusion is because of the word oestrogen. So phytoestrogen just mm. means plant-based products that act on oestrogen receptors. But they aren't oestrogen. They're not the same as our oestrogen and that we that we produce or that that we have in HRT or the combined pill. Um, and they they act more like the CIRM, so selective oestrogen receptor uh, modifiers. Oh gosh, my brain's gone. But you know, they they yeah they 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 do act more like that. So they can have pro-oestrogen effects in some tissues and, and anti-oestrogen effects in others. So they can be almost breast protective. Um, wow. and, and, and and to kind of block the actions of estrogen in the womb, but they could be helpful in terms of your heart health and your bone health and things like that. And also yeah, the gut I, health as well. Yeah, and I've heard lots of people say to me it's really helped them with their hot flushes. I yeah. don't know if there is any science, but that's what they've been telling me. Just to clarify, so we can send people off going shopping now, what are phytoestrogen when we put them in the shopping basket? So I suppose minimally processed soy, but I would include a good quality soya milk with that. Make sure it's fortified. It's got the calcium yeah. in it. Um, tofu, tempeh. Um, a lot of people may not be familiar with using these. Um, I mean, I eat it all the time, but I, obviously I didn't do before I, before I was vegan. And it's only just because I've expanded, I suppose, and, chain, and changed what, what I do eat. But tofu and, and tempeh, often it's about how you marinate these things, but you can, you know, you can have them. I like tempeh sandwiches that have been, you know, marinated and you have them. with. Oh, I wonder if you can share a recipe with us. <laughs> <laughs> I can send you one I use if you want. Yes, I'd um, love to. Um, but also you have them in, in in salads and stir fries and curries and things like that. But then there's edamame beans. Um, so you can have those um, edamame beans in, you know, in salads again and stir fries and the miso. You can have it as a condiment and you can use it as flavorings. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways to include that or soya flour and, and things in baking if people don't particularly like the taste of it. But also there's like chickpeas and everything like that. Flaxseed, which you can oh, sprinkle yes. on uh, salads and everything. So I just love where this conversation has taken us because I'm feeling really hopeful. I'm feeling really inspired. I'm feeling really proactive when I talk about food with you. And we've started the conversation and I, and I felt, you know, it's sad to to hear how long you've struggled and you're a medic and there wasn't the help for you, but it's just so real, right? And 
for anyone listening who might not think they've got loads of options lined up for them, they might be waiting for an appointment for months and months and months, and they're feeling nothing is happening and they have loads of symptoms. Food is something we can do now, right? It, and like you say, it can help us with our long-term health, improval of our symptoms, and how brilliant that we can do something each day to support our health, mental health, physical health. And I'm feeling really hopeful because food was definitely a refuge for me. It definitely gave me the biggest hope. It had a massive placebo. And I really actually felt that I was actively doing something towards think, my recovery. I think, yeah, I think it's so powerful. I think when you're thrown into the world of cancer, obviously that's out of your control. Nobody would ask for that. And, you know, you know, it's, it's, you know you, you're there, you know, you could have, I don't know, but through no fault of your own, you're ending up in that situation. And I think, again, if we can make small changes and do things for ourselves, it does give you that, you know, it powers you a little bit. And you, you do you do feel like you're involved in your recovery rather than just waiting for doctors to say certain things. Obviously, you do need medical guidance, but it, it can make a, a difference, um, definitely. And the other things that can really make a difference in terms of diet is you're not having too much sugar. I mean, I, I have a sweet tooth and... Me too, a terrible sweet tooth. I know. <laughs> um, and actually, a lot of people end up having kind of sugar cravings and carb cravings when they're, you know, when they when their estrogen levels are low, and that's because estrogen is is you know, um, it it affects our serotonin and dopamine levels in the brain, and and you can get a quick dopamine fix if you have like a piece of cake or you know something sugary, but it's a temporary fix and often can lead you feeling a bit worse where you know when you finished. When, when you haven't had you know a few an hour or so later and this isn't to say never enjoy a piece of cake I mean I'm I frequently have cake but it's just making it kind of more of a treat and making sure that the rest of the day you're eating quite well or you know things like just trying some new fruits and stuff that kind of still get give you the same sweetness um not you know not not quite the same I know but lots yeah. of processed sugar can certainly make symptoms worse because it's pro, quite pro-inflammatory and stuff as well mm. um fascinating but, and the other I thing am, is alcohol I, yeah, alcohol is mm. one of the worst things unfortunately um, um and I, I think a lot of people don't realize how much that can impact impact symptoms um in, in menopause whether or not you're on hrt but a lot of the medications we'd use for for, for menopause it, it, it can have a, a negative effect so if you are on hrt your estrogen will spike after you have a drink and then it will crash which will trigger worse symptoms it negatively really? affects mm. your bone health negatively affects your gut health increases anxiety and depression so a lot of women i see can't tolerate alcohol anymore at all um and i i don't know it's easy i can just say i'll just never drink because yeah but but I, it's it's difficult isn't it because sometimes you feel like you're missing out you might just want a glass of wine if, if it's your birthday or you're going out for a meal and that's not the be all and end all but i think it's just being mindful that actually it's not going to be helping you um or or even if you just if you have one glass wine making sure you're having it with a meal and you know have a good quality glass mm. of wine or something mm. like that but Actually, stopping is exactly what I did. I'm eight and a half or eight and a half years teetotal now. So really, really yeah. I might have had five drinks in eight and a half years. And for me, it was actually much easier to stop rather than to reduce and yeah. think I'm going to have two glasses a week. And it was much easier for my mindset to say I'm not drinking. It was January the 1st. Initially, I did dry January and then I just kept going. Did you feel um, better because of it? Yes, and no, it was really difficult. The first six months were really quite difficult. I felt very awkward in social situations. It was the time where 
my mental health was quite low anyway. So I felt, oh gosh, who would want to sit next to me? I'm sure I'm so boring. Now I'm teetotal as well. I've just gone vegan. And mm. No one would want to have me for dinner anymore. So I don't know where I was the only young person I knew then with, you know, cancer, three young children. And so I don't know whether that removed me even more and made me feel a little bit more excluded by yeah. putting myself into that social situation. It was definitely the social situation was quite difficult to manage at first. And then people become less interested. And I realized no one is really that interested in whether I drink or not. But I had to go through the process. But the way you eat and the way you drink and obviously having had cancer can be so life altering. Yeah. I think when we then alter things ourselves, it becomes more balanced. So I felt so much was happening to me, all the surgeries, and I didn't really feel I had much say in it. I just did whatever my doctors recommended. And then when I made choices myself, like I'm not going to drink, I'm going to eat differently. I'm going to exercise more regularly. I suddenly thought, oh, gosh, there is lots. I have say in lots. And I needed yeah. to become empowered to have a say in lots because then I didn't feel so disempowered by everything else that happened to me. And I, I love that you talk about it in such a passionate way because it's a big thing for you, isn't it? Food, yeah. lifestyle is a big thing. Definitely. Um, and I notice when I when I kind of don't do don't take my advice basically I mean I think when I when I struggled um, I had an injury when I was training for a marathon um in in, in March this year and then my and I was told I couldn't you know shouldn't be running cycling or kind of really doing a lot of walking and suddenly it was I just my, everything kind of fell apart slightly in terms of yeah. I, I I felt like it was that was what I structured a lot of my days around um you know if I was working I always had to work out when do I fit my exercise in and then I always felt a bit like oh I just you know I've, I can't bother maybe I just need to rest but then I think I've been I hadn't been eating as well and all of these things and I suddenly realized how much of a benefit this this did do to you know had for me and so I'm back I'm back on stuff now I, I'm still not able to run and everything but I'm so I'm doing the strength training and even just going to the gym makes me feel better and trying to I mean I say I I am vegan so I always eat plant-based foods but I probably had too many processed foods recently yeah and again yeah. it's trying to have more fresh food again and I know I feel better so it's all of the it's all of this stuff it makes it, it makes such a difference I've also booked a paddleboard lesson so because I want I miss <laughs> nature and so I can go out in the Norfolk broads and do that so I get I mean I'm lucky I guess I can be able, I can do that but I it, it does make you feel good because I think you even this far down the line so it's nearly nine years for me now I think mm. you know yeah I don't know I still need to kind of keep my eye on the ball and, and stuff and uh yeah it's it, it sometimes it feels it feels hard to do things that you think other people do effortlessly, but we know it's not the case really. You talk to everybody. If it is an effort in a way to keep up with healthy things, but you realize that how much it benefits you once you stopped basically. So yeah. try not to get to that point. <laughs> I think this is my biggest takeaway actually from our conversation now is continuously putting effort into your well-being mm. is, is something that we should all be taught maybe in school when we grow up right we, we we maybe become adults and we think life should be easy and it should be easy to have this status quo of feeling well that it's a given yeah. and the more people I speak to it's not a given whether it's your story it's the stories of people I speak to all the time to feel truly well we have mm. to put a lot of effort in and that is the real expectation and anything else is surreal and not right <laughs> I think yeah. Oh, you're really lucky. 
<laughs> yes yeah no I think there are some but there are some lucky people out there I think yeah, there? But, yeah, yeah. but I think a lot of us especially those of us who have had some chronic condition to manage whether it's post-cancer or surgical menopause for another reason we do have to, it is managing a chronic condition I think there has to be a level of acceptance and one of the things we did with the book is we gathered some questionnaire anonymous questionnaire responses and stuff and and uh, I, I think some of the people, especially in the early stages, do struggle with the acceptance and want to be like everyone else in inverted commas. So you, taking the alcohol thing, for an example, a lot of people do struggle with alcohol tolerance, you know, regardless of, you know, forgetting how it affects your symptoms and stuff. They they know that, that it, it just it, it doesn't make them feel very good and they're very frustrated. Um, and there's reasons why alcohol tolerance changes with menopause, but they, they're getting very frustrated about that and thinking they just want to be like everybody else. And I think maybe on one level we have to accept, but we're not, unfortunately. You know, we and and I think it's kind of making peace with that, but then thinking of here, but what can I do? And we're not alone. Whatever our story, we're not we're not alone. And I think actually, even for me writing the book, and even though I see lots of patients, it was still quite life-filling for me from a um, personal point of view. Some of the things that I've struggled with that weren't necessarily talked about with with that written down there for me to see and yeah I don't know I think it's just connection is really important I think with others as well not that you want to kind of make your whole identity necessarily about your diagnosis but I can imagine in the early days with with cancer it probably does become about that because it's so all-consuming but looking about living well with cancer or living well with your condition so yeah thank you Hannah it's been fabulous talking to you today and I am looking forward to receiving a tempeh recipe from you maybe I'll have to find one now (laughs) I'd love to. I've cooked the tofu, but not tempeh, and I'd love to give it a go. Oh, Dave. No, no, I, I really like it. I know lots of people do. I, I really like it. So, uh, yeah. I'll give you my criticism or critique on it. Okay, excellent. <laughs> thank you, Hannah. Okay, thank you. Gosh, I loved talking to Hannah because Hannah, for me, keeps it real. If Hannah, who is a doctor and trained in helping people with an early menopause, and she's a GP and menopause specialist, if she herself hasn't had a straightforward journey, it was difficult for her to navigate her menopause and her symptoms and her journey with HRT, then of course it's going to be difficult for us. And I think that is the biggest key takeaway for us is managing our expectations. And so Hannah has really helped me understand it is a difficult journey for all of us and There is no sort of easy, quick fix to anything, regardless of the treatment options we've got available to us. And what I really also enjoyed so much about talking to Hannah about was the belief system that we have to continuously work at feeling good. And that is something I have really learned over the last nine years. And I'm a real passionate believer about every single day, every week. And of course, I sometimes take my focus off. I do know I need to work hard at feeling good and that is through lowering my stress levels, eating well, moving more and that is something we can all do regardless of where you're starting today. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation and if you're like me, if you're a little bit inspired to maybe look back at everything that's happened for you way before you even arrived in menopause, all your periods through your teenage times and to honour your path, I think that's what I'm going to do right now when I get off chatting to you and then I'm going to look at a tempeh recipe and I might share that with you on one of the next episodes. Please help more people find the podcast, rate, review and share 
the podcast. I'm so thankful if you can, because that means more people who need to listen to our conversations can then find us. Thank you.